reflecting on the Dharma tonight. You can't hear me? Got to turn the mic on. <laughs> <laughs> reflecting on the Dharma tonight. Um, a few things just to to mention in uh, practicing being with a Dhamma talk, both as one giving it and one listening, to uh, encourage a way of seeing it as a practice. It's a uh, it's helpful to to um, to stay present with our body, with our breath, with our own experience, both as the words unfold and the silences between the words and our own inner responses. Uh, one of the things I mentioned the other night on the retreat that we've just finished up at the um, at meditation center was that which I found very helpful was a teaching from Ajahn Chah, who was the Thai forest master that's probably familiar to you through the teachings of Jack Caulfield, who I think was, uh, he was one of Jack's teachers. And um, when I first met Ajahn Chah, which was in 1977, he came to the UK. And at the time that he arrived, I was practicing on a retreat with about 70 others. We were young people, very new to Dhamma practice, and so we hadn't had a lot of exposure to someone of the caliber of of, uh, Ajahn Chah. And he, he arrived on the retreat, and one of the first things that he did, I mean, first of all, I had never really seen uh, Buddhist monks before, he came with Ajahn Sumedho, and Ajahn Chah is very small and he's got this big, had this big pot belly, and Ajahn Sumedho is, uh, is very tall American, so they look very incongruous together, <coughs> and they came into the meditation hall, and I, I thought they were like spacemen, I didn't know where they'd come from, and uh, Ajahn Chah had this uh, wonderful presence, and in the corner of the room, there was a, a Buddha rupa, Buddha statue, that we hadn't really taken much notice of. We just shoved it over into the corner. It was all dusty and not very cared for. And he came up, and the very first thing he did is just go up to the Buddha and bow. And I hadn't really uh, seen someone bow before, and it, it struck me as a very complete teaching in terms of a an inner attitude in relationship to life, this, this way of just putting one's hands together and bringing our head down to the ground and opening and coming up into the next moment. And then one of the things he said, he gave a Dhamma talk, and it was a, a very beautiful talk, and he communicated a very strong presence with his words, and, and as I listened to the talk, I, I kept thinking, this is a really good talk. You know, this is great. This is fantastic. And then at the end of the talk, he said, if you've been sitting here listening and thinking this is good, well, this is bad. You haven't been listening properly. <laughs> and of course, then I said, oh, I thought, well, that's really good. <laughs> and I still think, you know, it's good or it's bad. And so it's a habit, isn't it, of the mind, the way we filter everything through our perceptions, through our framework, through what we've heard before, um, comparing. This is, uh, you know, this is the way that the mind is. And what he was encouraging was an, was an entry into the moment in a, in a more open way, learning to listen beyond our judgments, beyond our preconceived ideas, beyond the sense of, of how it should be in any moment, because this tendency to project, the mind to project in any moment, how it should be, how I should be, how things should be, is very pervasive and very powerful, and in that and in, and in the doing of that, we somehow miss the actuality of what's unfolding before our eyes or within our being or within ourself. We, mi- we miss the immediacy of the Dhamma as it's unfolding because we keep thinking it should be another way. 
and we and it somehow has to be right for us to 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 be in a situation where we can really <coughs> open to the Dhamma to the truth of the moment. So Ajahn Chah's teaching was very much about um, adjusting our attitude so that whatever circumstance one is with, however it is, it's a it's a way. It's if we're open, it's something that something's always teaching us in every moment. <coughs> but if we're judging the moment, then often we can't hear that teaching. We can't really hear it. So another an, another little story around that, which Kitty Saro told the other night, which I'd forgotten about actually until he told it, but it's a great um, cameo piece of an Ajahn Chah teaching, is when one of, uh, a friend of ours, a, a dear friend of ours, who's currently uh, abbot of a small monastery on the, the, um, the borders of England and Scotland in, in Northumberland, uh, a monastery called Ratnagiri Monastery, when he was a young monk practicing in Thailand, he had, um, he had problems with his knees. And as a monk or a nun, the thing that you do a lot is sit. You know, and you take a lot of pride in being able to sit in a sitting posture, cross-legged. And this, this monk had, couldn't sit, couldn't sit cross-legged. And in fact, he had to eventually go into hospital in in Bangkok and have major operations on his knees, which basically started to screw up his career as a sitter. <laughs> and, and he was very depressed about this. And he was laying there one day in hospital with his legs in plaster and straight out and feeling sorry for himself and depressed. And Ajahn Chah came in to see him and he was saying, oh, Ajahn Chah, it shouldn't be this way, it shouldn't be this way. And Ajahn Chah leaned over and said, well, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. <laughs> so that's, you know, it sounds simple enough, but that's, um, that's very profound to really enter into life a bit more unconditionally, you know, to be willing to be with the actual teaching that life, because it's never quite how it should be, if you've noticed. You know, we're never quite how we should be. You know, we're never quite feeling. We, well, we might momentarily, you know, it all sort of configures in a certain way and we can feel like this is, you know, this is great, I've got it now. <laughs> And, and then something pops out or happens or challenges us or doesn't work out the way we wanted it to. And we can feel the sense of being let down or disappointed or sort of scra scrambling to try and get things back together. And, and a lot of that comes from this assumption, this unconscious assumption that the mind is constantly projecting onto the moment and onto ourselves and onto our environment and onto the world. And it's not to say that we, you know, that we don't work to try and uh, make the world as it should be, according to our idea. I mean, that's a great thing to do. <laughs> but there's also a certain level, you know, which is a, a level that where we enter more deeply the contemplation of the Dhamma, when we really more unconditionally allow ourselves to really reflect on the way it is. You know, just the actuality of, of what unfolds in every, in every moment, what actually life is teaching us, and how in some ways in that process it's actually hard to make it exactly perfect in the way we would like it to be, or we can momentarily. So as we, as we reflect in this way, in, in meditation and in practice, in our life, we, you know, more and more we allow ourselves to, re to realize in this attitude of opening more unconditionally to the moment that everything is unfolding, the Dhamma is unfolding. The Dhamma, Sanditiko, is one of the, the terms for the Dhamma, which means it's present here and now. And the Dhamma isn't so much what's written in the books, but it's what's actually present here and now. It's akaliko, it's, it's timeless, it's not 
conditioned by what we feel should happen within the sphere of time. It's forever unfolding here and now. It's always inviting us to explore it, to contemplate it, to investigate it, to see into its nature. So this Dhamma, this Dharma. Now one of the things Ajahn Chah would encourage is to know the Dhamma in a very simple way, in a very immediate way. <coughs> when, um, when my partner, my husband now, uh, Kisaro, uh, went to practice with Ajahn Chah, as a monk, he'd, he'd been, he's, as I mentioned in the opening introduction, he'd, he comes from Tennessee, and he was a graduate from Princeton as a Rhodes Scholar. And he'd gone to Oxford to write a, a thesis on the work of uh, science, art, and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley, right? <laughs> Big topic. <laughs> And, uh, and in, the, in, the, in the midst of his, his time in Oxford, he started to meditate. And he'd done a 10-day retreat. And, you know, he thought he kind of got it down pretty much. And so and he heard about, on this retreat, he heard about Ajahn Chah. This is in the 1970s. And he went off to Thailand to go check out this enlightened master. And when he got there, of course... Uh, you know, he was being an American. <laughs> he figured out that if he'd done one 10 day retreat and he'd gotten so far, then he probably could hack it in about, you know, maybe 10, did the maths, and maybe in a year he would crack it, you know, and that's it, and come back the first enlightened guy from Tennessee. <laughs> you know, so he was like, had, had this whole sort of strategy of, of going to Ajahn Chah and, you know, sort of being with the master. And, uh, you know, getting the transmission, tap on the head, the whole thing. So he turns up at the monastery at Wat, uh, Wat Bapong to see Ajahn Chah. And, uh, and the first thing Ajahn Chah would always say to, to any disciple coming who'd come to get enlightened, he'd say, well, first thing he'd say, well, have you come here to die? You know, it's a bit, bit, a bit shocking. <laughs> oh, I've come to get enlightened. Yeah, so that was the, the first thing. And then he said, well, you know, what, what have you done? And so could he start going, well, you know, art, science, mysticism, works of orders, Huxley, you know, I can, he said, can you meditate? What, it was, what have you learned? He said, yeah, I go, yeah, I got it down. I can watch my breath. I can check my sit, you know. And Ajahn Chah just was looking at him. And as he was talking, he got off his Dharma seat and he started, he went down on his all fours, his Ajahn Chah, and starts sniffing around like a dog. <laughs> and, it's, and he was saying things in Thai. And this translator, Westerner, who was translating for Kilisaro, Kilisaro said, what's he saying? What's he saying? <laughs> and, uh, and Doug Burns, the translator, said, well he, well, he says you're sniffing around everywhere like a dog. <laughs> He said, everything you need to know, you, you come here, and everything you need to know is here with the breath. And those of you that know Kitty Sara know he's got quite a big nose. He said the last place he wanted to go was his nose. You know? <laughs> Spent his life trying to get away from his nose. But. So, so this you know, so Ajahn Chah said, everything you need to know is, is with the breath. You know, everything you need to know is with the breath. And then he said, go be a monk with Adrian Semedo. Go learn how to be a monk. So that was, that was, you know, that was a beautiful teaching, and you know, a very simple teaching. And you think, well, maybe I need to know all about these very esoteric practices and read all the suttas and learn all the teachings. He said, can you know, can you really be with one breath? First of all, can you, can you be here enough to be with one breath? You know, can you actually experience a breath you know, we have all our ideas about life, about this, about that but what is it to actually come into relationship with this one breath and to feel to be with and to steady around the experience of breath the body breathing 
So as we begin to contemplate, as the, as the awareness opens and we contemplate the experience of breath, and we, we're, we're entering the, the teaching of the Dhamma. It's teaching us. We can say the breath. We can say something like, we have a noun for it. We say, oh yeah, the breath. I know the breath. Breathe in, breathe out. That's it. But as we approach it, with this wisdom eye, as we actually start to really contemplate its nature, we can recognize that it's constantly changing, it's constantly vibrating, it's constantly flickering. You know, so we, we come into a relationship, it's, like a, it's actually like a waterfall, it's, it's moving, and it's, it's intimate. We breathe in, it's sustaining us and nourishing us, we're all breathing, and we breathe out. We can't just keep going in, in, I love the breath. It's so great. It's so wonderful. We can't, at some point, we have, to, we have to let it go. We can't just keep taking things in. We have to also, for, for there to be sustainability, for there to be health, we have to let go. We have to trust the letting go. We have to allow ourselves to let go with the breath. And then a new breath comes. So it's teaching us that, that we take in, we're nourished, we're full, and we breathe out and we let go. There's a birth and there's a death. And, it's, and that which we're taking in, which is so intimate to us, which is sustaining us and nourishing us, and which is constantly flickering and changing, is also totally impersonal. We don't own it. You know, we think we own these things. We feel we, you know, we don't really get somehow, you know, the depth, this, this very simple teaching on the impermanence of the breath. That it's something that's sustaining this very life. And at one, one point there, there will be a breath and no more in-breath. So it's very precious as well, each breath, breath of life. But also we don't own it. It's a gift. You know, it's a, it's a temporary arrangement, we could say. This breath's a temporary arrangement. And perhaps more fully, as we're with not only the breath, and as we experience the, the feeling and the sensations and the, the perceptions of the mind, we can actually look at them from the wisdom eye, from the inquiry, and we feel we very, very much immediately assume that the, the eye of, of Dhamma, seeing the Dhamma, the nature of things, without the eye of Dhamma, we immediately assume and project onto our experience and interpret it as, as you know, this is, this, is, this is who I am, this is what I am, this feeling, this thought, this perception this sense of myself as I shape myself around what I'm doing, what I'm becoming, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, the roles that I take, where I'm getting to in my life. <laughs> you know, the way that we just, these things just move on through the mind, these assumptions of ourself. But in the Dhamma eye, when we steady and become very, very present and start to really inquire into their nature. It's nature, and in particular, and most subtly, the nature of thought, the nature of perception, how it frames the sense of self, how it frames the sense of this moment. When we, when we enter that and, and really look more closely, we can also see like the breath, it's a flickering, changing, moving, dynamic if you've noticed. <laughs> who you were this morning and how you felt this morning is probably not how you feel this evening and who you feel yourself to be this evening. Which is kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> how that moves and changes and shifts. No wonder we get a bit confused sometimes trying to figure out which piece is us. You know, am I happy? Am I sad? Am I confident? Am I, am I not? Am I doing well? Am I not? It's constantly, it's, it's constantly influenced by so many factors, changing, moving, vibrating. 
the Buddha said is he made an analogy. He said it's a bit like if you go to the the Ganges and you you pick up a bubble on the top of the Ganges and you look into its nature and you can't really say what is this river. You pick up a piece of it and you say it's like this. It's a river. It's the river Ganges. But when you pick up a piece, it runs through your fingers. And in the same way, when we go to look with the eye of Dhamma, when we go to inquire with the steadiness of attention into the nature of ourselves, of this body, these feelings, these thoughts, this breath, as it's unfolding in its dynamic way here and now, it's a bit like picking up one of those bubbles. Buddha said each of these five khandhas form, feeling, perception, sankhara, shaping the patternings of the self-structure, how we feel ourselves to be, moments of consciousness, moments of hearing, hearing my voice, rises and passes. He said, each of these five khandhas, as we pick them up and investigate them, are like those bubbles. They are lacking in solidity. They're void, they're they're empty of solidity. We can't find a permanent self dwelling there. It's fluid, it's changing. So as we contemplate this way with our immediate experience, just here and now, it begins to also teach us about all things. You know, that all things have this nature, are, are prone to change. We can't, we, can't really, uh, we can't really predict what's going to happen. I was talking to a, a friend today whose company was, in, if you remember, in, in, in um, August this year, if any of, uh, any of you were involved in the stock markets, <laughs> they, they took a hit. Some kind of, particularly in the property market, mortgages and so on, that she was saying in her company, the beginning of the weekend, things felt very solid, very secure. By the end of the weekend, the, the, whole, the whole thing had changed. And as a result, billions of dollars were lost, banks collapsed, people's homes were lost. You know, in a one weekend, you know, this... this I said, well, well, what happened? What, what? <laughs> I'm not in that world. <laughs> well, it's hard to say, really. You know, maybe a lack of confidence. It's, it's one of these amorphous things. You can't really put your finger on exactly sometimes. What, what are the cause? What happens? But all we can know is that things are very uncertain. You know, it's uncertain. It's changing. So in the, as we begin to contemplate that, we can notice, you know, in, 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 in the moments of our experience, we, we have this assumption about continuity, you know, projections from our mind, how things are going to be, but in the actuality of the moment, we can begin to notice that what's arising is ceasing. This, this our, our, what we're feeling, what we're thinking, the breath, even the sounds, you know, the sound arises in the Dhamma talk we could say this this sound is arising we think it's good it's bad it's but but it's the Dhamma talk it has this sense of something but actually if we look into the heart of it we realize it's full of holes it's a sound it's arising and the sound is ceasing and what we what we usually and often do what the mind is often does it's so enchanted by the by the forms of life, by the sounds, by the perceptions, by the feelings, by the where we're getting to, that we don't often notice the context. We don't often notice where, where, do, where, do, where does sound cease? Where does thought cease? Where does feeling arise from? Where does sound arise from? In this moment, what is noticing the arising and passing of this sound here and now. 
So as we contemplate this way, then, then what becomes revealed is the ephemeral nature. We can say, yes, this, this is, this is, a, this is a, here for a moment. It arises, it comes into being. This sound, this Dhamma talk, this Monday night, that spirit rock gathering together has arisen in our consciousness. That there's something that's knowing this moment, that's framed it, that's the perception, it's arising. At some point it will pass, there'll be the end of the evening. The morning arose. The morning, where is the morning now? Where's that gone? You know, where's the future now? Where's that gone? So as we start to reflect on things, we begin to notice the actuality of the Dhamma, because we, we have this way of framing through our perception and through our assumptions a sense of some solidity and some continuity, which yes, on, on one level it is the case, but in the actuality of the reality, we can just say this is an assumption. The actuality is that in this moment, there's this constant flickering and arising of that which is actually quite ephemeral. And therefore, in one of the teachings of the Buddha in the Diamond Sutra, he said that all conditioned dhammas, dhammas, all things, all things that arise, whether it's a, a breath, whether it's a thought, whether it's a feeling, whether it's a moment of knowing, I feel like this, whether it's a Monday night class at Spirit Rock, whether it's a, a stock market, <laughs> our stocks in our bank account <laughs> that wobble and shake according to some weird thing that goes through the consciousness of the global economy, uh, whether it's a, you know, a, a mood, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a role, whether it's a job, whether it's this very planet, all condition, these are all condition, these are all things, these are all manifestations, these are all forms, all conditioned dhammas, all things that come into being that are conditioned, that are conditioned by many different causes that come and manifest in this moment in our perception, in our awareness. All conditioned dhammas are like dreams, they're like bubbles. They're like illusions, like shadows, like dewdrops and a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. The suchness. Contemplate them thus. All conditioned dhammas are like dreams. They're dreamlike. They come and they go. We, we have this dreamlike experience of life. All conditioned dhammas are like dreams. They're like bubbles. They appear and they dissolve. They're like illusions. They're there, but there's also something like a magic show. The Buddha said this world of forms like a magic show, changing and moving. They're like shadows. You know, it's, it's in our memories, in our perceptions of the future. In some ways, sometimes it feels like we're in a shadow play. Like dewdrops, when the sun comes, the dew evaporates. <coughs> the dewdrops are only there because there's no sun, so they're dependent upon them not being having any sun. But as soon as the sun rises, they evaporate. So their existence is dependent upon other causes, like a lightning flash. contemplate them thus. In South Africa, where I've lived for many years now, in the Drakensberg Mountains, on the border of Lesotho, or the Uchatlamba Mountains, as it's called in Zulu, we have these, uh, we have a hermitage and we have these, uh, where we do long retreats, and we have these amazing, it's one of the highest areas for lightning storms, thunderstorms. The uh, Sutu is the catchment area for, for uh, rainfall, it feeds into Johannesburg, and the Mpungalunga, as it's called now, the old Transvaal. And uh, these, we have these incredible storms that come in the 
in the morning it's hot, 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 and dry. And then about midday you start to see some clouds come in. And then by about one or two in the afternoon this intensity starts to build up and this darkness in the sky builds up. And then this storm just explodes. Lightning. It's really very dramatic. And if you and it's just above you, it's actually terrifying. <laughs> Lots of cows often get struck, people get struck. Very Kali like. Africa's very Kali like, the energy is very much like Mother Kali. Very turbulent, reflected in the weather patterns. So um you know, and then the storm will die down. But sometimes at night, in the mountains, we live in this, it's, it's on the edge of a wilderness, and it's totally black, you know, the sky and the stars, and sometimes you'll just see the residue of the storm, the lightning, as it flickers across the sky. And you're looking for the next light. It's so, it's so thrilling to see this lightning. You know, sometimes it's just going across the whole sky. And you're looking for the next flash, and you're looking for the next flash. And you don't quite know where to look. You look that way, and it happens over there. And then you go like that, and it happens over there. So you scan, you try and look every direction to get it. And what occurred, occurred to Kirisara and myself as we were, you know, one night looking, it's like every, we look for the, the moment of the exciting flash in the sky, but where does the flash dissolve into when it goes? Where does it disappear into? What remains? And then one realises there's this immensity of the sky, of the dark, black, night sky going on into eternity, stretching out into infinity. And in many ways, you know, which is just, just so powerful to open to this infinite night sky and in many ways this is a good analogy for, for the awareness of the heart, that which is always present, that, that into which all these forms as they arise in their perfection the Dhamma is perfectly teaching us in all its forms as it arises as a thought, as a feeling, as a movement of the heart, whatever it is, happy, unhappy, praise and blame, success and failure, all of it is arising in its perfection and dissolving back into that which is just simply knowing, simply present, the immovable suchness of the heart, the immensity of awareness, that which isn't going anywhere and which is accessible and immediate and can only ever be here and now, that which knows, that which is intelligent. When we open to the radiance of the heart, when we open to the natural awareness of the heart, which comes as we gently release out of our fascination with the forms, with our projection of how it should be, with our constant tinkering, (coughs) with trying to get it right, in moments of really allowing it to be as it is and allowing that to induct us into that which is present and aware, timelessly (coughs) so, then we can recognize our true home. We can recognize that which is actually utterly peaceful. Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who's a Thai forest master, said, When the mind gains change of lineage knowledge, which passes from the mundane over to the transcendent, it will see it will see what dies and what doesn't. It will blossom as Buddha, the awareness which knows no cessation. When the mind gains change of lineage knowledge, you know, this is the this is the deeper lineage, <laughs> which passes from the mundane over to the transcendent. It will see what dies, what arises, what's born, and what dissolves, what dies. But it will also know that which doesn't die. 
and it will blossom as Buddha. This is our, as Ajahn Chah said, you can call it what you like. It doesn't have a name, but if you have to call it something, you can call it your original nature. He wasn't that keen to call it anything. But this Buddha, that which is present, awake, knowing here and now, it will blossom as Buddha, the awareness which knows no cessation. practice of Dhamma, really the, the, the practice of gathering attention, being able to bring attention here moment by moment to reflect on the, the conditions of life, the forms of life, to reflect you know, the mind that's gathered, the mind that can see how it is. In one of the, in the suttas it says, Panuttara Sabbe Dhamma, which means that Every condition, however it is, is surmounted. Pan uttara. Uttara means to surmount. Pan means is from panyo, prajna. Surmounting sabbe dhamma, all dhammas, all things that arise, happy moods, sad moods, pleasure, pain, rather than the tendency, the, the mind that's ungathered will, will tend to just react, to resist, to become to avoid, to distract. The mind more, more, and more, more and more fully here, rooted in its awareness, in its natural capacity for presence, for awareness, will be able to surmount all conditions with wisdom, revealing it's the next line, revealing as each condition is met with this awareness, with this knowing, <coughs> Each condition reveals its nature, which is vimuti, which means vimuti sarasabedama means at its essence, all conditions, whether it's the breath, whether it's this dhamma talk, whether it's whatever you're feeling here and now, whether it's a sensation, whether it's a mood, whether it's losing all your money on the stock market, <laughs> whether it's winning the lotto. I don't know if you have the lotto here. <laughs> Lottery. Whatever condition is arising and passing, Vimuti at its essence is already free. It's already empty. It's already spacious. It's already in its heart teaching us its nature. It's only there for us to see. So every condition, everything that arises, takes us back into this recognition of that which is not arising and not passing, that which is just simply present, the heart itself, the awareness itself, the listening nature itself. So as the, as the these words, <laughs> just words, So entering this awareness more fully, deepening our capacity to be more fully here in a way is a path of unknowing. And as Ajahn Chah would say, when people would come to the monastery, you come, you know, we, we go to, to get things. We go to, to get knowledge, to get enlightened, to get awakened, to get rid of things <laughs> you know, that we feel we shouldn't have. And his encouragement was, you know, have you, have you come here to let go, to open? And this is a, a hint about how we enter more foot more deeply the present wisdom of the moment. Can, can the heart let go? Now Ken Wilber says a very interesting thing. It's a quote I actually really like very much. It's, some, it's a teaching I like very much because I like it because this is how I feel a lot of the time, but it doesn't feel easy to be with this this process of unknowing or letting go or stripping away it's very it can feel very vulnerable for the heart you, you know if I know something I feel more secure <laughs> but what the Dhamma entering more fully into the Dhamma 
I actually feel sometimes I'm more and more deeply entering into a flow of not knowing and the self, the self-structure wobbles around that. You know, I've got to know what I'm doing, <laughs> what to say, <laughs> who I am. <laughs> and it's not, yeah, not to say that I can't find my way home, hopefully. But <laughs> <laughs> so this is Ken's thought. People think being awakened means you understand everything. But really it means you don't understand anything. It is, all of it, a total mystery. Isn't that a far-out line? You know, when we know something, we sort of strip it somehow of something, another dimension that's available to us when we just release out of that tendency to box everything up. I know who you are. I know who I am. Do I? <laughs> Do you? You know, the way we frame everything. So this mystery, like that dark night sky that we can open to, that life is unfolding in this mysterious nature, teaching us. Enlightenment is not all-knowing, but not knowing. Not knowing. Not knowing. So the mind, the heart, as it dwells in its own nature, as it recognizes this capacity to be present more fully, it enters more deeply the, what's called the prajna paramita. The innate wisdom can operate and flow. Wisdom isn't something we get. Wisdom <coughs> operates and flows as the heart opens and recognizes the dynamic nature of this moment the stillness of the awareness and the dynamic flow of the Dhamma and the interrelationship of both. <coughs> so this Prajna Paramita, the heart of awareness, is said to be the mother of the Buddhas, the primordial awareness of the heart, that which gives birth to wisdom. It's the awareness, it's the heart in its natural capacity for awareness that gives rise to to, to wisdom, to understanding. And as we deepen and allow that to operate, then the wisdom comes in each moment. This is how it is. It's like this. What we need to know, we'll know for this moment. What we don't need to know doesn't matter, does it? And that's interesting for me. I've been really, I mean, this is an edge for me in my, in my practice to really explore. Is there a way of really more deeply living from that place. You know, to recognize rather than have to somehow hold on to all this knowledge. Uh, you know, in a, in a relative realm, yes, of course, we need to know how to turn on the computer, <laughs> download our emails, go to work, do the stuff we know. But I'm, I'm talking really at a, at a sort of more essential level of our being. You know, can we actually trust the simplicity, as Ajahn Chah was encouraging, to be with one breath, to open up into the awareness of the moment, the unknowing of the moment, to allow this dynamic flow of a deeper level of intuitive intelligence to operate? The wisdom of the heart. And as, we, as, as there's a deepening into that, the em which is through the emptying, the <coughs> emptying, the deepening into that, then one begins to not only feel the sense of uh, resting in the awareness and what needs to be known emerging, but one begins to sense another dimension which is the, the, the realization that everything's interconnected, that the breath that we call ours, the breath that we feel is ours, is connected with other beings. We're breathing together. Plants are breathing out carbon dioxide. We're breathing in oxygen. We breathe out carbon dioxide. They, we, we begin to realize our thoughts. These thoughts I'm communicating aren't my thoughts. I'll, I'll take responsibility for them, don't worry. But 
but you know it's whose thoughts are they I don't know you know stuff that I've heard and contemplated and, you know the, the the truth of anatta the truth that actually in the same way as we don't ultimately own the breath we don't ultimately own anything it is here for a moment we take responsibility but it's an interconnected dynamic it's a seamless universe everything is interacting and moving with everything else it's a seamless whole here in this hall when I came the other day to hear about what was wanted for tonight's talk and so on I noticed that we had these beautiful Kuan Yin statues Murtis and actually at one point there was a thought of putting one behind for tonight which would have been which would have been really cool <laughs> there is one? Oh, she's there <laughs> in the archetype of Kuan Yin, we find both the, the depth dwelling in emptiness in the Heart Sutra in Avalokiteshvara. The Sanskrit Avalokiteshvara is the Sanskrit for Kuan Yin. Avalokite means to regard. Shvara means the sounds. And the one that regards or contemplates the sounds. And Kuan Yin or Kuan Shu Yin, Kuan means to regard. Shu means the world, and yin means sound, the one that, that contemplates the nature of sound, the nature of sounds as they arise and pass, not just literal sound, but then contemplates and listens into the, into the nature of beings and listens into the self-nature. This is the activity of Kuan Yin, which emerges from her rootedness in depth emptiness. Which is accessible only in the present moment. And as she regards the world, the sounds, the sounds of the world, the sounds of suffering, there's a recognition that within emptiness, all things are emerging in an interconnected way. You can't say that form exists. Because when you look into it, as, as uh, one Chinese master, Master Wa, said, when you look into forms, what he called wonderful existence, the forms that arise as wonderful existence, when you look in deeply, they're empty. But you can't say it's empty because when you, when you look into emptiness, there is form emerging. So Kuan Yin contemplates both the emptiness and the emergence of form. And it's said in her depth of contemplation as she contemplates the five khandas, as Avalokiteshvara points to Sariputra in the Heart Sutra and says, contemplate the five khandas and their emptiness. In this contemplation, Kuan Yin actually arrives not in a, in a state of deep dispassion, but also in a state <coughs> of great compassion. So Kuan Yin is also the archetype for karuna or compassion. So here we find from, from the emptiness, the emptying of the heart, there is a resonance, a capacity to resonate with all life forms. And within this word karuna, the word ru, the karuna means to weep, to weep with. To not only, as you know, so the emptiness isn't cold and alienated, but it's, it's in a way more and more deeply entering into the non-separative consciousness, the the, the ability to feel more and more deeply the place where we're united, where there's a, there's a, there's a non-dual situation. And it said, Kuan Yin, contemplating from that source, feels intensely the suffering of living beings. It's not a speculative, cognitive perception, but they're feeling intensely the suffering of living beings. 
and weeps therefore. So Kuan Yin's vow is to, she dedicates herself, himself, Kuan Yin can also appear of course in any form, so as an archetype, so she appears in the feminine, which is the preferred, often the preferred form, but also she can appear in any form, in the masculine, in any form where the heart needs to be touched by compassion. Kuan Yin's activity is to to uh, devote her life energy to respond to the suffering out of the place of emptiness, out of the place of deep peace. So this this uh, dedication or this devotion, devovere, the Latin, which means to dedicate uh, a vow, which is the, the vow of Kuan Yin. So when, what I like about this archetype is in a way it's speaking to our, our own nature in its depth, both that which is peaceful, empty, present, in its perfection, not going anywhere, not needing anything, but also that which from that place of emptying, and emptying is able to be wisely in touch with the world and know the appropriate response to know the appropriate response which emerges in the moment. I'd like to finish tonight with a poem to Kuan Yin. The river flows through as I am woven together with you, like threads in a blanket that keeps us warm beyond the tide of that which does not recognize the gentle devotion of us together. This still presence nurtures and soothes my quiet woe, like a song with notes entwining, like lovers secure in their chateau. Lady of the night, you come to me in the people through whom I move. What I offer, you say, is what you have already. <coughs> quietly for a few minutes. So finishing tonight with a, a mantra, <coughs> a Kuan Yin's heart mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, 
heart mantra of Avalokiteshvara. As we allow the sound to go out, just contemplating all beings, dwelling within this one heart, this one mind. May all beings tonight, may they share in the goodness of our practice this evening, the blessings of our life. May their hearts be freed from suffering, and may they know the taste of peace. tonight and just before we leave there's just a couple of short announcements to say that next Monday Jack will be back and dinner will be served and it would be a great help if anyone wants to assist with tonight's cleanup um, to begin please by moving chairs to the side of the hall and if you're able to stay longer and are not blocking another car which is important we would certainly appreciate your help. Please check in with a volunteer or staff person wearing a white badge and ask how you can help. When you leave, if you are heading east to Fairfax, remember to turn right onto Sir Francis Drake, then left through Woodacre. Please do not make the U-turn on Railroad, Railroad Avenue. Please remember to look around the hall and in the foyer for items you've brought with you. Okay. So a safe journey home, everyone. Good night.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.